Hi, I'm Phelan Johnson. And I'm Leah Simone Bowen, and we look at history a bit differently. Have you ever wondered how hundreds of wild horses came to inhabit an island in the Atlantic Ocean? Or what Lord of the Rings and a small town in Manitoba have in common? Or the burning question, did Canada invent the teen drama? The Secret Life of Canada is a podcast about the country you know and the stories you don't. New episodes available now wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. So May Martin is really having a moment right now. It's nice to get to talk to them while they're in the sort of the eye of the storm. Their Netflix special is blowing up. They're in development for their new TV show. They're selling out stand-up dates all over the world. So May's here to talk about their path, about things like addiction and transphobia and how to address them in a gentle and funny way and why they're having their best year ever. May Martin is coming up. Plus, Anoshidani is a playwright who wants to talk about how we talk about immigration. His play focuses on three people coming to Canada from the same country, how each of them had completely different experiences, different relationships to where they ended up, and how that made him think of his own experience coming to Canada. I'm Tom Power. You are listening to Q. Hard not to love a story like this. So pretty much the first time May Martin sees stand-up comedy, they become obsessed. They're going to every show they can. They're making friends with comedians who are like 5, 10, 15 years older than them. They're dropping out of high school to become a comedian. May starts out taking Second City classes in Toronto, uh, moves to the UK. And in the past couple of years, their career has really been blowing up. During the pandemic, they wrote this show and starred in this show that was sort of based on their lives. It's, it's called Feel Good. They were on this big show called Flight Attendant. And now, now they have one of the biggest stand-up specials on Netflix of the year. It's called Sap. And as I mentioned, it's a show that does a lot of things and in it. Um, May talks about heavy stuff like addiction and transphobia. But I got to say, they talk about it in a way that that's warm and gentle and genuine. So we had been looking forward to talking to May for a while. We started out by talking about why they decided to come home to Canada, why they decided to shoot their special in Vancouver. Here's my conversation with May Martin. How are you? I'm so well. Hi, Tom. Um, congrats on the special. Um, you filmed it in Vancouver, right? I did, yeah. Why did you want to film the special in Canada? It has a, um, well, it's got a nice sort of sentimental homecoming feeling. And I, I haven't, I hadn't done a show in Vancouver since I was 20. So in like 15 years. And uh, so I was hoping the audience would be warm and Canadian and receptive. And, and they were. Yeah, so it was, it was really nice. How has it been since it came out? Like, how are you doing? I think the reaction's been really, really great. I mean, I'm addicted to my phone. I'm reading every single thing that is ever said about me ever and doing all the things they tell you not to do for your mental health, like just scrolling endlessly. But yeah, the reaction's been great. And um, Netflix has really got behind it, I think. So it's been it's been great. You, you're you doing all the things you're not supposed to do. You're, you're looking at all the comments. You're reading all the articles and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. I'm, and, you know, I'll internalize the one negative thing and oh, yeah. stew over that for days. And uh, yeah, no, I because I know you're not supposed to because it, it's all meaningless at the end of the day, but you can't help it. I find there's two kinds of people. There, there's there's people who, who read every single thing that's written about them online. And then there's like liars. Because I don't know anyone who yeah, actually, yeah. I don't know anyone who actually, I say, to, I, used, I used to be one of the people who would be like, you know, actually, you know, it's important not to read it and to get validated. Yeah. But at the same time, I was reading, I was reading everything. 
Of course, of course. It's so impossible not to. So um, I, I, I want to talk more about the new special, but I think we should go back and sort of tell the story a little bit. And I, I kind of told some of it in the introduction there about how you, you were obsessed with comedy when you were like 13 years old, right? Like how, how obsessed, like how often were you seeing shows? Well, I started taking improv classes at Second City when I was 13. And then really quickly, I was seeing the the regular Second City show two or three nights a week. And I don't know why my parents gave me such a long leash, but um, yeah. And then that sort of escalated. And by the time I was 15, I was kind of either, yeah, performing maybe four or five nights a week. So I was very tired at school and yeah, dropped out to do it full time, started working in the box office at Second City. So I was just in the building all the time and really immersed in it. I was deeply, profoundly obsessed by not just the medium of stand-up, but the whole world and the social scene and the green rooms. And it was very intoxicating to an awkward teen. The 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 hang, the hang backstage, like the green rooms and all that stuff, that was as exciting to you as the as the stage itself. Yeah, especially somewhere like Second City where the walls are just covered with pictures of, you know, your idols over the years and the cast of SCTV and all these, you know, the hallowed... <laughs> The hallowed walls. It's yeah. Who were who were the comedians at that time, like in in downtown Toronto at Second City, who you were sort of obsessed with? Well, I was obsessed with the the people I grew up watching, like SCTV and Kids in the Hall, and I think Tom Green at that time, and people like that. But the the people I was seeing perform were um, well. One friendship I've maintained is um, Carolyn Taylor, who's from Baroness von Sketch yeah, Show. Yeah. She was on the Second City main stage. When I was 13 and I used to go and wait at the stage door and uh, chat to her and I'd like braces and acne and um, she's now one of my best friends. So that's a more than 20 years, that friendship. And it's yeah, amazing watching her like flourish and getting to write on that show as well. It felt like full circle vibe. Well, why do you think it was so why do you think you were so into it? Why do you think it kept because, you know, people who are into comedy like it and they might watch tapes or they might watch like just for laughs on TV or something like that, like I did. But, you know, what, why do you think it became such an obsession for you? Hmm. I don't, I mean, I'm, you know, I talk about it in therapy a lot, but I, I don't know. I think, uh, I think it's, I was probably feeling sort of like a, a sense of otherness at school. This was the nineties too. This was the era of girl bands and boy bands, right? The question you needed to know an answer to at my school was which Spice Girl are you? And it was like, you needed to know, you'd be in the, like in the hall and a group of girls would corner you and be like, which one are you? It's like, cause they're organizing lip syncs and stuff. Like they need to know, I don't like no judgment. They did need to know where you fit into the constellation. She's like, which one are you? And I was like, I like, Justin Timberlake? I don't know. <laughs> Nick Carter? You know, looking back, like I, I was probably queer and non-binary and didn't know those things. And then there was this adult world where people were being really celebrated for their differences and could be self-deprecating and awkward and funny and be applauded for that. And I just thought it was like a superpower that these people had. And my parents were very funny and very into comedy. Like my dad, I could tell, really respected comedy. And I you know, I think at one point wanted to be a comedian. So it was, yeah, it felt like a valid thing. I want to play a clip from, I think I think you were 16 years old here, and I hope you could play it and you might be able to tell us a little bit about it. Oh, God. Um, I'm here to deliver my speech on uh, women in the media, because there's a lot of them around. 
There's women in all areas of the media, in film, in television. And, sir, I'm having a party next Friday. I don't know if you guys want to come. Uh, it starts at 6, it's at St. Clair and Bathurst. My mom says you have to be gone by 7.30. That's cool, but uh, it's going to be fun. I thought we could um, have some carrot sticks or watch taped episodes of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I have season one and two on tape. Uh, so t- tell me a little bit about that. <laughs> um, what's crazy is when you watch that clip, it... That was a, a televised on the Comedy Network. I think mm-hmm. it was a, a Tim Sims Encouragement Fund Award. I was I was nominated for. So yeah, I'm 16. I'm doing a character. So I'm dressed in my school uniform. Uh, I think the character was called Catherine Butchko. And uh, yeah, but when you watch that clip, it looks like it was filmed in 1970. Something about the film quality is so grainy. <laughs> or, it makes me feel like I'm 100 now because it really seems like a blast from the past. Um, but man, I was so nervous so nervous and and it, but yeah interesting that i was doing these big characters you know i was gonna say that like it's inter- it was interesting to me that you were doing characters at all because like i think when you watch like a lot of comics you know luckily because of youtube you could see some comics when they're like 14 and 15 years old and you know th- th- typically the style is similar like i saw the clip of seth rogan i think when he was like 14 and it was it was similar yeah. to what he's doing it's interesting to me that back then you were doing like characters and big musical numbers as a, as you know because that's very different yeah. than what we do now yeah that's well i mean i grew up loving sketch comedy and character comedy that's the that's mainly what i watched i yeah and and improv and things like that there's it was something so magical to me about uh t- you know two comics together and their proximity and and is, uh, that kind of electric chemistry so i only sort of started doing stand up uh yeah when I was about 15 or 16. But before that, I really wanted to do characters and, and things like that. I think I'm focusing on that time because in your in your special, you talk about how like you're so you were sort of obsessed with you are sort of obsessed with your teenage years. Yes. And also listening to that clip, I'm like, God, I, I, I seem so vulnerable. I mean, it's a character for sure. But when you I look so young when I watch it and um, so much was going on in my life at that time. And, and uh, it was such a chaotic explosive time like I think I was a, about to get kicked out of my house or I just had and I was really partying too much and um yeah just kind of totally untethered and so it's crazy to watch and yeah so much has happened since then yeah I mean back back then you were you were there was a lot of drugs in your life there was a lot of you know addiction issues in your life you were getting as you mentioned you're getting kicked out of your house and what's interesting to me about that is is not, is not just that it happened but that like you're, you're you seem to be interested in sort of revisiting a lot like including in the in the new special yeah like I, I guess well a lot of my friends and I when we get together we're still sort of picking at the scabs of adolescence and remembering those times it's such a visceral time for anyone and i'm interested in i'm interested kind of in general about how we as a society deal with teenagers and um and that kind of thing but yeah maybe it's because i I feel like a totally different person now to to who i was then and so i'm trying to sift through it sometimes looking for clues about why it got so crazy and i just remember feeling so angry and kind of confused about the world and it's just been an interesting time in the past few years because it feels like we can't really deny that the systems that we're participating in are really messed up. So I feel like maybe teenagers are right to be angry, but they just have to find sort of healthy ways to rebel instead of self-destructing. But yeah, I, I think about it a lot. I want I don't know. 
That's that's one of my favorite jokes in the special, mate, is like where you talk about, I think it's oatmeal, like you got oatmeal yeah. tattooed on the inside of your wrist. In a way, my anger was valid. And I think a lot of teenagers feel this like righteous indignation and stuff. But it was the method of my rebellion was was garbage. Like it was like so self-destructive and self-involved and like I, you know, it was impotent ultimately. Like I got this tattoo uh, when I was 16. It says oatmeal. Um, it says oatmeal twice. And I remember being like, the man, you know? <laughs> like, what? Yeah, the man. Yeah. But really just all I've was my own job prospects. I have the word oatmeal <laughs> tattooed on my on my wrist. Cause I think as someone I had a crush on like drew it on me. And I thought that would be really funny if I got it tattooed and also just this nihilistic, like, yeah, whatever. And yeah. My mom has been a, a little less funny every day since I got it, you know. My mom told me over the weekend that she was like, You made my you made some of those years really hard because I had read No Logo by Naomi Klein when I was like, uh, uh, and you yeah, and I yeah. the same age. So I read that when I was like, what, we were like 12? Yeah. And yeah. and I remember, and I was like, so I didn't want to wear Nike anymore. I didn't want to wear anything that was like made with, with, with you know, with sort of unjust labor practices. But I led that to like anything with a logo on it. Like I wouldn't wear like a National Geographic t-shirt. I wouldn't wear like, a, you know. And yeah. I, I don't really know what I was trying to achieve there, except for making, <laughs> making my mom's shopping life incredibly challenging. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man, I wonder if we would, I bet we would have got along. Yeah, I bet <laughs> the two of us just angry listening to Kid A. and Yeah, um, and just slightly misguided rebellions. But, like, knowing that we're onto something, you know, that, that I get why it's so sort of threatening to, to adults sometimes, that teen rebellion, because it makes you aware of all the parts of yourself and your critical thinking that you've had to suppress just to get by in the world, you know? Yeah. Like we, we are pointing out the things that, that they have to kind of put away just to try and live, which is that, which I love in the special, you talk about why you love Gen Z so much. I feel like Gen Z is incredible. And I don't believe that they're just on TikTok. I think they're wicked. They're out there. They're doing stuff. They're like, you know, protesting climate change and dismantling rigid gender binaries. Like, what was I doing? I was like slithering around being like, does anyone have any acid? <laughs> they seem to be not as motivated by binaries. They seem to be not as motivated by like past logic. I think they're great, Gen Z. Yeah, I think they're really great. I, they they come to my, my shows and they just seem light years ahead of where I was at that age for sure. Uh, speaking of kind of cre uh, creating identity, I wanted to play a, a clip from SAP. Just take a listen to this. We're little like experience hunters collecting these to put them on our brain shelves and be like, I'm me. I'm <laughs> like, and I always visualize every experience that we collect is like a little novelty snow globe, you know, and we're just going around being like, <laughs> like one time I saw Antonio Banderas at the airport. Yes, I did. And I'm myself and no one else is me. I <laughs> and then all human interaction is really is. I've really noticed this coming out of the pandemic is all human interaction is just basically taking turns showing each other our snow globes. I mean, going back to what you were talking about with the sort of life experiences that you've, you've gone through and translating them into, into comedy and TV, for people who don't know, you created this semi-autobiographical TV show called Feel Good, um, which explored a lot of different things, addiction, a secret relationship. I guess what I'm curious about there is what was it like for that to come out and for people to feel like they knew you? Well, it came out in um, in the pandemic. Both seasons 
came out in the pandemic. So I think that was kind of helpful for me because I didn't, uh, I got to kind of, you know, when I put my phone away, it just wasn't happening <laughs> because I wasn't really out and about in the world and meeting people and talking to people who'd seen the show. So I think that eased me into it a little bit, but um, yeah, there's definitely been a, a marked difference in the types of conversations I'm having with audience members after shows and things where they're like, they want to talk trauma, you know, <laughs> they want to talk about deep stuff and, and I'm, uh, I'm into it. I, yeah, I wish I could be like, they think they know me and they don't, but I feel like they sort of do to an extent, which is unsettling, but also satisfying. But um, yeah, I think because I, I'd never written anything like that, I think I wasn't really self-editing and I didn't really know what it would feel like to revisit some of those things. And but it was good. It meant I kind of threw myself into it. If I if I wrote it now, I might be more I might be more guarded. <laughs> you mean like to revisit those things? Like, I mean, you've been open in the past about like the addiction you, you dealt with when you were younger. I guess I never thought about that. You'd have to, in order to portray that in the show, you'd actually have to like re-inhabit the things that you once did, which can't be easy once you get past them. Yeah, it's like you know, sort of snorting fake cocaine and stuff, and which. On the page, you think, yeah, great. This is narratively where where we have to go, but um, in practice, is a little bit is a little bit odd. But luckily, you know, I'm I'm in a, a solid a solid place with lots of nice buddies around, and I, I did have a blast making the show. But um, yeah, yeah, very very weird experience, very surreal. How was acting? Because I know you had to learn how to act to do the show too. Oh man, I am so <laughs> in awe of really good actors. I I. I I, I mean, I loved it, but I found it so scary and challenging. With stand-up, it's just you on a stage and and you can easily pivot if it's not going well. And you have this immediate feedback of whether you're doing a decent job. And so there's something really unnerving about delivering a punchline. And then, you know, I, I almost wanted to look around at the crew and be like, did I did I land that joke? No one's laughing. Like, yeah, but it was it was fun. I really loved it. I I I made sure that I had a lot of rehearsal time with my my co-star because it was a pretty intimate love story. And so we had about three weeks before we started filming kind of like a play, which I, I didn't realize is like unheard of for TV to have that long to kind of inhabit it and rehearse. And I think that was helpful because I was so nervous. What's the most surprising thing about, about acting that maybe you weren't ready for? Hmm. Well, the only way I know how to act is to really do a kind of a, a emotional recall and to really feel the feelings. It, it sounds so basic. I, I truly didn't know. I, I thought it was like you arrange your face to look sad or angry. Like I was so focused on my face going into it. I was like, I hope my face looks real sad. And then <laughs> someone was like, don't think about your face. Just think about feeling sad. Just feel sad. And then your face will naturally look sad. And I was like, oh, of course, that's we're not thinking about what our face is doing, but it's so hard to get away from that self-consciousness. May, I don't think I ever thought of that. So you're like when actors like do the death of a parent or something like that, they have to actually put themselves through like the torture of feeling that sadness. I guess so. I mean, that's what maybe people have different ways of doing it, but yeah, I definitely now understand that it's not about just like making your making your face look uh the shape of a sad face, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's a couple of times now, I feel like in our conversation, like um, we sort of like 
touched on something that was a little bit hard, like be it like, you know, um, or addiction or even just the, the experience of like coming onto set for the first time or having to relive those things. And you said a couple of times, you know, like, yeah, but luckily, you know, I'm in a better place now or like I got a good crew around me. And that kind of reminds me of the special because, you know, it's, it feels so lighthearted in some ways. It feels, even though you're talking about real things, it feels joyful and, and lighthearted. Like, was that was that intentional going into how you wanted to write this show? I think with the, with the special, it happened organically, which is such a nice surprise. But I, um, yeah, I was just coming out of the pandemic and out of making Feel Good, which was so uh, personal. And it was a, a comedy drama. So, it, you know, I wanted to have a nice time. And I was touring, um, doing improv, improvised stand-up. And uh, yeah, I just found I was gravitating towards silliness more and the kind of clowniness that you have when you're a kid, when someone tells you you're funny, you know, and, and, and less in my head. And and so I think you can, I think you can really tell I'm having a, a good time in the special and the show kind of grew out of that. And, and uh, yeah, I've had a really good year, you know? Yeah. I think in the special, you say it was the best, the best year of your life. Yeah. I mean, that's to do with, you know, I had, I had top surgery like a year ago and I'm 35 years old. It took me so long to do that. And um, I think I say in the special, it's not even like I've had like a euphoric, amazing, hilarious year. It's just the absence of this intense discomfort that I almost didn't really realize was there and was so prevalent. So to feel the absence of that kind of low level agony that, that has been amazing. And I didn't, I didn't know that that kind of comfort was accessible to me. I, I or I sort of thought everyone felt like I was feeling, and I don't think they are. You know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It reminds me of something. Um, I got to talk to Sam Smith not that not that long ago. And, oh, nice. And they said something to me like that. They said, um, "Tom, what 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 you might not understand, or what people might not understand, um, is that." The, when when I changed my pronouns, when when I when I just you know when I when I had the more accurate pronoun of who I am, you know, which is the they mm. pronoun, I just felt great. I just felt better all the time. Like it, yeah. my life became incredibly easy. Yeah. After that, you know. Yeah, easier. I mean, if you think about like the thing about the thing that you're most insecure about, like you know, my my friend is super insecure about losing his hair. And so it's like, imagine you're going through your day and just everyone is constantly just commenting on your hair. So that's sort of what it felt like to constantly be misgendered or like, you know, have people, yeah, it, it just felt like a, like you're constantly being poked in your most sensitive spot all the time. And so it's nice for that not to be happening so much. Coming up on the show, more of my conversation with Mae Martin. They'll talk about something that must have been a trip on their TV show, Feel Good. They were writing a character that's very close to themselves. That character was realizing they were non-binary. And at the same time, so was Mae. So they'll talk about that. Plus, my conversation with the acclaimed playwright, Anosh Erani. After this, on Q. I'm Candice Lim. And I'm Rachel Hampton. We are the hosts of ICYMI, Slate's podcast about internet culture. And we want to help you make sense of the need-to-know internet stories of the week. Consider us your internet historians of past, present, and future. Of the good, the bad, and the truly unhinged. 
From nuanced takes on stories we're all closely following to the ones you wished you heard about. In case you missed it, that's ICYMI, the podcast that's extremely online, so you don't have to be. Follow and listen now. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. You're in the middle of my conversation with the comedian Mae Martin. Their new Netflix special is out now. It's, it's excellent. It's called Sap. Mae's comedy is often about their own lived experiences. So like funny stories about their childhood in Canada or in the UK or about their family. But in this next part of our conversation, we're going to talk about their TV show. It's called Feel Good. And it's one of those shows that's semi-autobiographical, but it does go into experiences that May has had in real life, especially around relationships and addiction. And this is interesting. In the second season, May's character starts to realize that they are non-binary. And May told me about how working on the second season of the show, like working on that character, ended up influencing their own journey in their own real life. So that's where we pick things up. What's the experience of like going through something personally and then at the same time writing about it through a character who is a lot like you? Uh, What you mean like with Feel Good? Yeah. Well, I guess, yeah, I think the character was sort of, especially in season one, the character was like me 10 years ago. And then season two, I kind of caught up to myself and it was super interesting. It was like, it, I, I mean, in, in season one, for instance, m- you know, my character's grappling with gender stuff and and feelings of gender dysphoria. So then with season two and me and my co-writer were just sort of dispassionately, narratively thinking about where, where would it be satisfying to take the show? And it was like, well, obviously we presented this problem in season one and we have to resolve it in season two. When you think of me in your head, do you think of me like a... Like a boy or a girl, would you say? Just you, really. Yeah. More importantly, how how do you see you? Um, yeah, just me, really, I think. Yeah. But then that feels like not really a thing, or I don't know what that means. Or... I think that that is a thing. That's non-binary, May. I, I do think maybe you should Google it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I probably should Google it. So this character needs to sort that out and get on top of it. And it was like, oh, but I haven't sorted that out. I I don't actually know how I feel. And so it it sort of expedited some uh, introspection that was really necessary, I think. And and because it was the pandemic, I had time to sit and think and interrogate. So, yeah, I I found it really amazing. But look, it's no substitute for real therapy. And it's so tempting to think that it is any kind of comedy. It's like, and and I want to clarify because often when I'm talking about my comedy, it seems like this is just like a therapeutic excavation of like trauma. Like it is truly just comedy, you know? Yeah. We just, just before I talked to you, I spoke to Hari Kondabolu and uh, he has that great line he said to me a little while ago, which was like, um, hey, so comedy can be therapeutic, but it's not therapy. Like, no. Yes, that's so true. Yeah, it's so not the same because you don't have uh, anybody challenging you. <laughs> you know, you're just you're challenging yourself, and you're but you're it's very solipsistic. You're presenting your point of view, and um, yeah, it's not the same as. And also, it, yeah, you're uh, curating it for um, approval, and uh, yeah, and for laughs. So it's it's very different to sitting in a room with someone judgment free, you know, in a, in a way comedy is like a self-esteem firing squad. It's, it's so intense. 
And therapy should be the opposite of that, I hope. I love the idea of comedy being a self-esteem firing squad, meaning that like people yeah. are going to take you down at any stage they can. Well, they just it's just an immediate feedback of what you're getting up on stage and going, do you guys like me? Like, do you like my personality? <laughs> yeah. Um, I told you I had a surprise for you. Yeah. So before we let you go, we talked to someone who has known you for a really long time. Oh God. And we, we asked him to record something <sighs> and let's, let's listen to it. Oh, my God. I'm Carolyn Taylor. I've known Mae Martin from the time they were, I think, 13, wearing braces with, like, slick back hair and a tight bun or something, uh, coming to see uh, the shows night after night at Second City. Um, I haven't seen SAP on Netflix yet, but uh, they performed it at the Danforth Music Hall back in May, and I did an opening set for them. So I was watching them sort of from the side of the stage. And just to see May go out there, the crowd went wild, like like they were the Beatles. Like it was just, I was waiting for people to be like tearing their hair out and climbing on the stage. <laughs> and to watch May up there and the intimacy and connection that they're able to create with an audience and their ability to find humor in the darkest, darkest of experiences and times and everything, you know, that they've gone through in their own personal journey and to watch them navigate uh, their careers and use their experiences to fuel their art and to fuel connection is is really amazing. And I think we're all super lucky to have me on the planet. I got to tell you that. Yeah. So what do you make of that? Oh, man, that's so nice. That's so, so moving. And I wish I could, if I could go back in time to my 13-year-old self and and play that. And also, I, I, I said the same thing about Carolyn, you know, yeah, we, we've we've been friends for so long now and seen each other through these different iterations of our of our personalities. And yeah, and Carolyn was a really amazing presence in my life and in my teens when when I um I, yeah, after I, I got kicked out and I got banned from Second City and I kind of felt very isolated. I lost a lot of friends and Carolyn always was very boundaried with me. Like she wasn't crossing boundaries with me, but she would just pick me up once a month in her gold car. <laughs> And take me for a hamburger or we'd go and do laser tag or we'd do something really wholesome and age appropriate and talk. And yeah, and I just was so grateful that she kept that friendship going in a sort of mentorship position and then that developed into a legit friendship. And now we, yeah, she cracks me up so much. Yeah, we went on a trip to Wales uh, together that was one of the worst vacations. Ever. Like everything went wrong. We were... It was a disaster, what happened? but it was, oh, just like, like the Airbnb we stayed in was infested with giant spiders. It was stuff like that. <laughs> like she got diarrhea on top of a mountain, like everything went wrong. <laughs> and um, I'm sure she won't mind me saying that, but um, it was the best trip because we were just hysterically crying with laughter the whole time. But yeah, that's, I'm very touched by that. Oh, it's, it's, it's really lovely. Um, before, before I let you go. Sort of the overarching theme of the of the stand up special is is this idea we were talking about of finding moments of joy or comfort even when it feels like there's a lot of terrible things going on. So um, maybe before I go, you could just give me some things that are giving you some happiness these days, some joy these days. Sure. Um, well, I just moved to LA and I've never lived in a city with so much nature so close by. So I've been I've been out hiking and stuff, and that's always good. Also, music like. I, I play guitar and I um 
I just started recording songs with my friends and that brings me a lot of joy because it's a totally different. Are you writing? Yeah. Yeah. I have, I've recorded an album, no. but yeah, I don't know if I'll put it out. You got to put it out. I hope so. Yeah. I'd like to. What are but, the songs about? What are you writing about? You know, just sort of being alive and yeah, there are a lot of love songs, you know, but yeah, I hope maybe one day I'll do something with it, but I also don't want to ruin the joy of it by trying to monetize it, you know, but um, so yeah, music, listening to music, food, friends, any dog. Do you have a dog? Yeah, I don't. And I, I travel too much, but I'm deeply, profoundly obsessed. Um, May, we we loved your special so much here. Um, and, and I've been looking forward to talking to you for so long. And thanks for- I'm so glad we made it happen. Yeah, thanks so much, Tom. Thanks for making the time. May Martin's new Netflix special is called Sap. It is excellent. Watch it tonight. It's out now on Netflix. Thanks so much to May Martin for, for, for joining us. If you want to share that interview with someone in your life, go to cbc.ca slash Q or subscribe to our podcast, Q with Tom Power. So a few years ago, Anosha Dani wrote a play called The Men in White. It was, a, it was a show about sports and immigration and Islamophobia. So Anosha Dani, if you don't know, is this critically acclaimed, award-winning fiction writer, playwright. And so the play did exactly as everyone thought it would. It was really well-received. It got great reviews. It was a finalist for the Governor General's Literary Award for Drama. If that was the end of the story, that'd be pretty cool, right? But, but here's the thing. After the play was over, put away... Anosh couldn't get the play out of his mind. Like, one of the characters in particular got stuck in his head, kept reaching out to him, kept talking to him. It was almost haunting him. And Anosh will tell you, when a character refuses to leave you, you got to follow them. The whole thing has led to a new play. It's called Behind the Moon. So he'll tell you more about the plot. It's set in an Indian restaurant in Canada. But what it really is, it's a look at the immigrant experience to Canada and how there is no one immigrant experience to Canada. There's no one story. There's no one emotion. I am really happy to say the show is available for all Canadians to watch online. From Vancouver, here's my conversation with Anosh Adani. Hi, how are you? Hi, Tom. I'm good. Thank you. Thank, thank you for being here. Tell me more about this, the idea that, like, you create characters and then they have like an afterlife. How, how does that work? I think what what, it, what happens is when you are writing a play or a, a short story or a novel, whatever the form is, I think if you go really deep into the internal life of a human being and you treat a character as a fully formed human, eventually they will start revealing things to you uh, and they will pull you in. Uh, one of the things that I love about writing is I have no idea what I'm going to end up with. So in terms of, you mentioned the men in white, there's a character called Abdul in the play. And there was one monologue of his that kept pulling me in where he talks about his relationship with this person who is his employer. And long after that play was over, Abdul did not leave. And I kept wanting to interrogate uh, his sort of interior world. I ended up writing a short story called Behind the Moon. Um, And then... Even after the short story was published in my short story collection, he continued to sort of haunt me, I would say. And then I realized, okay, I just have to write a play. And so I wrote, I came up with this situation where he's working after hours in an Indian restaurant. 
Um, he's an illegal immigrant. He's working under the table. And one night, an Indian cab driver enters the restaurant after closing hours and asks for Indian food. And that's how the play begins. When you say that character that you wrote, I mean, it's a lovely way of thinking about it, the idea of creation, the idea that you you create these characters and as you sort of put pen to paper, they become fully realized people sort of, you know, existing in their own world. I, I'm struck when you said they haunt you. What, what does them haunting you feel like? I think the way I write, I always ask myself, how is this person wounded? You know, if you think about it, even in real life, unfortunately, many of us uh, carry wounds. And whether we realize it or not, we react to certain situations when we get triggered based on those wounds. So when I'm trying to find um, the truth about uh, a character, I always ask myself, okay, how are you wounded? I ask this person who is fictional, what's your wound? And this is the beginning of the conversation for me with that character. And then when you realize what these characters who by then become as real as the people that you know, when you realize what they've been through, that's when their pain haunts you. So that's that's what I mean. Their pain haunts you. Their, 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 their wounding is in your mind. So, 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 so tell me, so then you have this... You have this character from the the play, um, and then he sort of haunts you, and then you sort of follow him to this new play, uh, Behind the Moon, which, as you mentioned, is set in an Indian restaurant in Toronto. You br- you briefly mentioned, you know, there was someone working there, you, the main character, someone working there, uh, an undocumented uh, uh, worker's passport being held, uh, you know, a cab driver um, who's coming there, kind of kind of late at night, sort of. Th- and there's a third, there's a third uh, different sort of immigration story into Canada. I wonder if you can just yeah. tell me about all those those three sort of main characters uh, in, in sure. this work? So in Behind the Moon, there's Ayub, who's recently moved from Bombay, and he works under the table as, as a chef in this restaurant. Uh, then there's the owner of the restaurant, whose name is Kadir Bhai, who is actually a family friend of Ayub's, uh, who knew Ayub's father back in Bombay. And he's been in Canada for a while, and he's really successful, quite successful now. And uh, there's this third Indian character who's also moved from India, from Kashmir, um, Jalal, who's a cab driver. So I I wanted to kind of explore these immigration stories of three different Indian men and what Canada means to them, what Canada has done for them, and what the Canadian experience has done to them. Um, And one of the questions, in fact, one of the main questions that I was I kept asking myself during the writing of this play is, you know, when people move to Canada, we we often hear people say, oh, it's much better here. It's a better life. And, and even you hear some immigrants say that, well, I came here for a better life. And this is a question I've always asked myself, what is a better life? You know, how do you define a better life? What does that mean? And Ayub comes to Canada because he wants a better life. He wants to provide for his wife and child. He wants to bring them here. And it's about that immigration dream that doesn't quite work out as you had hoped that it would. Yeah. You know, um, and so that's the central question. And the meaning is is really what is a better life. The the One of the characters in the play says about immigrating to Canada, to get something, you have to lose something. Tell me more about that. I think immigration and moving from, uh, and this was my experience. I mean, even though that line comes from Kadir Bhai, who's in a way the antagonist of of the play, 
Um, he's also talking about his own journey. He's being truthful about what he went through um, and how when he was in uh, Canada and worked construction, no one really spoke to him at all, you know, and he felt extremely isolated. And in a way, uh, you know, I, my, my journey was quite different in the sense that I came here as a student to study creative writing. But the isolation that I felt in, in Canada um, was what really struck me. We have this vast open space, this beautiful landscape, and yet I felt um, there were times when I couldn't breathe. It was it was it was very difficult for me. The the only thing that I really it that isolation made me do was focus on my writing and reading. So eventually, that something that was painful became became a gift. But you you end up losing home. Because even when I go back to India, I go back to Bombay, it's not home anymore. Yeah. It's not the same place. Every time I go back to Bombay, uh, it's like a parallel line. It's something that continued. W one of the, the strange parts is, you know, even as an immigrant, you always think about what your life could have been yeah. back home, yeah. what people are doing, uh, what would it have been. And that's not a very healthy way to live, but yeah. it's a hum human sort of uh, instinct. Did the writing help? Like, when, did writing help with that when you when you came to Canada? I think that was the only thing that kept me anchored to this place. One of the, you know, so I moved here in '98, and in the year 2000, I started working uh, as a summer intern at the Arts Club Theatre Company. Um, I was an assistant uh, to the artistic director, and that was the first time I felt like I belonged here, and it was through theatre. Being in, uh, you know, a room with actors, with directors, with dramaturgs, and just being able to to wrestle with something where in theater everyone's looking for meaning, right? Everyone's so passionate, dedicated, and they're looking for meaning for something higher. And that made it very rewarding, and I thought, okay, I'm, I'm, it's the right move that I made. When did you write your first play? So I wrote my first play called The Matka King while I was um, during exactly during this time um, in maybe 2000, 2001, I, I wrote a first draft. And I remember when I wrote it as well, it was during the Christmas holidays. Oh, and, no. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I couldn't. I, I remember it so clearly. I thought, oh, everything's so. It's getting so dark. It's getting dark by four thirty, and uh, I wanted so badly to go back to Bombay, uh, but I couldn't afford to because I was a student at the time. And uh, suddenly, something just. I said, you know what? Uh, I'm going to use the next ten days to write a play. I'm going to write, and that's exactly what I did. I, I had a rough first draft of the play in those 10 days. I'm imagining like families outside celebrating in the snow and you're inside with like a candle, you know, yeah. hunched over a desk. <laughs> well, I was I definitely hunched over a desk uh, for sure. But again, that's, you know, it sometimes you the, the restriction and, and when the tide works against you, you can, if, if you sort of accept it and don't resist it too much, you can, it, it, it worked for me. Yeah. The the what, I want to go back to what you were talking about that there is there is no one immigration story to Canada, there's mm -hmm. no one immig immigration experience to Canada, and I think more importantly, there's no one correct way of feeling about immigration. It's a it's a complicated and nuanced 
thing that we can't fully wrap our heads around. It's not the same for everybody. So, Absolutely. So, so we can, but we can look at sort of anecdotal stuff. Like I know behind the moon, this play we're talking about has completed its stage run in Toronto. What did you hear, like in particular from maybe immigrants to Canada who saw the play? So it was, that was actually one of the most rewarding things. Um, a couple of people told me that now when they will look at someone who works behind the counter, whether it's, you know, in a small convenience store or in a restaurant or whenever they see someone, uh, and this is what a couple of people told me, that now they are forced to imagine what they have been through to get here and what they are going through. And and essentially, that's what you want your work to do, is you want the audience to imagine someone's inner life and develop empathy for it. I mean, that, that um, that's compassion, right? Absolutely. And and that's that's something we don't do often enough, I think, is we're constantly reacting to each other, but we, we don't sit for a moment and think, I wonder what the person's story is. Because once you know what someone has been through, you you understand them much, much better. As a like, as a novelist and as a playwright, like I wonder if plays are uniquely good at kind of forcing us to imagine someone else's inner life, you know, more than like, I I think a novel is really good at sort of putting us in the mind of somebody else and someone else's emotions. But going, when you said that, you know, that like your play sparked someone to, you know, talk to someone behind the counter or someone they met and remember that they haven't, they have an inner life and an inner story. I wonder if plays are, are uniquely good at that. I, it's a good question. I think if both, have the ability if they're character driven you know i i am not someone who's interested in telling clever stories i'm i'm not interested in cleverness whether it's through a novel or a short story collection or a play i'm interested in the human condition and i think you know my work creates some sort of shift or disturbance in the audience or the reader uh, even with my novel the parcel uh, which is about a transgender sex worker in Bombay's red light district. Uh, a journalist that I met in Bombay, she told me that her whole view on the trans community changed when when she read read that book. Uh, in Canada, there were so many people who came up to me after readings. You know, they would wait to to just add a line or two at the end of that just to say a word of of what the book meant to them. Mm-hmm. And that's incredible when when someone waits to just tell you what this story... And these are people who are born in Canada. They have really nothing to do with the world of the red light district. But that's what literature and theater does. I mean, it does so well is it helps you connect and it, you will connect only with another human being. Um, what I love about theater though is the, the immediacy of it. The, yeah. the fact that there's a collective gasp in the play. There are moments when the audience, you know, experiences something together, uh, a disturbance or a moment of laughter or a moment of intrigue where they're pulled in or when the entire theater goes completely silent and you know you've done your job. Uh, that's so that's so beautiful. And my favorite part of this whole story is that typically when I have these conversations, you know, I, I have to say things like, well, if you're in Edmonton, you can see the play next weekend. Or oh, if, you're, right. <laughs> if, if you're in Toronto, you can see it for two weeks. The, the greatest thing about this is that this show is available to watch digitally across all of Canada. And I think that's great because I think there's so many Canadians who need to see it. Thank you so much for your time today and congratulations on the work. 
Thank you so much, Tom. Appreciate it. My conversation with Anosh Irani, his new play is called Behind the Moon. So it's just completed a run at the Tarragon Theatre in Toronto. The play is available for all Canadians until the end of May at tarragontheatre.com. Tarragontheatre.com. Go check it out. Tomorrow on the show, Catherine Hardwick will be here. Catherine Hardwick uh, behind the movie Twilight, behind the movie 13. She'll be here to talk about her new movie, all about a woman who accidentally joins the mafia when she's trying to take a fun Italian vacation. We'll see you soon. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.